We have instincts, but we routinely are able to go against our instincts, unlike an animal. An animal is not able to violate its own instincts. It doesn't, because that requires an understanding. In order to understand what this instinct is, this desire for food, and recognizing, aha, well, you know, that's the, uh, uh, that's the third packet of chips I've had today. Um, I might still have an instinct to go back for more, but I'm not going to because I understand what happens. <laughs> I understand that this is not a good thing. This is my recorded conversation with Brett Hall. Brett is a podcaster. He's the voice behind my personally favorite podcast, TalkCast. That's T-O-K-C-A-S-T, TalkCast. Brett communicates ideas and philosophy, creative and critical thinking, optimism, unbounded progress, among others that align with the deepest questions of our understanding. His podcast is uniquely the best of its kind, and ideas shared there can be of immense value when understood. Links to his blog, Twitter account, and podcast are given in the podcast show notes or description if you're listening on YouTube. We talk about knowledge in its philosophical sense, evolutionary psychology, and free will in this first episode. Hope you enjoy listening. Seeing your work <laughs> and listening to your podcasts, I naturally assume you're quite intrigued by the subject of philosophy, the big questions of the universe, how we understand understanding itself, all this. So what is it about philosophy do you think is so interesting to you, to your minds, which makes you so deeply curious about it? Well, when I was at school, I was interested in science. And I was always interested in the big questions, as you've called them. And the biggest questions I could think of were things about big structures, big physical things. So I started thinking about where the earth was in the center of the uh, in terms of the solar system where the solar system was in terms of the galaxy the galaxy in terms of the universe and so things just kept getting physically bigger and bigger and then i went off to university ostensibly just to study that stuff to study astronomy and astrophysics and what has become precision cosmology scientific cosmology the study of the origins of the universe and where the universe is going and that led me to an understanding, uh, not an understanding that a physicist would have, even though I sort of started learning that at university, but an understanding that things like quantum theory and things like general relativity were really what it was all about in terms of depth, in terms of trying to get to the heart of why it is that things were happening at all in the universe, why it is the universe was able to obtain the size that it had as of today, the different scales of structure of size going down to the smallest and largest. And so I thought I was grappling with this idea of the big questions, but still I kept on delving deeper and deeper and deeper and trying to figure out what are the limits of physics? And you get into what are the limits of mathematics? What are the limits of computation? And that naturally leads to uh, an interest in philosophy an interest in where knowledge itself comes from. How can we understand all of this stuff? And what are the limits to our understanding of all of this stuff? And it leads to certain people. And so it leads to people like Paul Davies in the first instance, who was a great popularizer of science, who wrote about everything I've just mentioned there. And then, of course, to people like David Deutsch, who works at the foundations of all of these areas. And so, of course, I, I, I really sort of vibe with him, I suppose, and the, his worldview, because he tries to synthesize all of this stuff into a rationalistic, coherent whole without leaving stuff out, without leaving sort of parts of our rational understanding of the world dangling there in sort of mysticism. Everything tries to make scientific, rational, and reasonable sense. So that's how I came to, to an interest in philosophy in particular. Yeah, that's great. So you mentioned knowledge and David Deutsch. Uh, I know in his, we both really admire him as a person and obviously his work too. So he, in his book, The Beginning of Infinity, he talks about two kinds of knowledge, explanatory and non-explanatory type of knowledge. Non-explanatory is the biological kind of knowledge, which is instantiated inside our genetics and it depends on how uh, it's it's just the knowledge inside our genes which makes us act in certain ways. And the other kind is explanatory knowledge which people create, as he says. And um, 
so there's this view many people hold which which seems to be that there's only non-explanatory knowledge that uh, affects people you know what makes a person tick what makes people do stuff right and so many people have this conception that there's uh, only genetics that are at work here and so that's how we uh, just make sense of the world and do our thing as blindly programmed robots maybe but uh, this picture that david deutsch portrays says that there's an explanatory type of knowledge too so do you think that the non-explanatory kind is the full picture I like the way you've put the question because you've presented it in terms of knowledge, which I think is the right way to go. And just for people listening who might not have encountered this before, when we speak of knowledge, what we speak about is useful information. It's the information that solves a particular problem. And because it solves a particular problem, that's what makes it useful and that's what tends to get it copied. And David Deutsch's eloquent way of putting this is that it is the knowledge that once instantiated in a physical substrate tends to cause itself to remain so. And it's a useful way of categorizing this particular stuff that I think other thinkers on the topic might not have fully grappled with. And one is that we have this genetic knowledge, this way in which organisms can persist over time. So their genetic material is getting copied. Why? Because it solves a particular problem of how this organism survives in a given environment over time. Problem is, if the environment changes too quickly, then the organism is not able to adapt quickly enough because the genetic information that's there has been arrived at by a process which is random variation and then selection. And the selection often is all about killing off the organisms that don't survive or, don't, or aren't adapted, so we say, to a particular environment. So that's one kind of knowledge, one kind of useful information, information that allows the organism to simply survive. And every other organism that we know of in existence ever has been condemned to a certain extent by only having access to this kind of knowledge. They're not aware of it. It's knowledge that's in their DNA and it's knowledge that determines their behavior, fully determines their behavior. They have a fixed repertoire of behaviors they can engage in. And so, therefore, anytime the environment changes too quickly in a way that is not able to be accounted for by the problem-solving mechanisms within the evolved DNA, they're done, they're done for. Something remarkable happened to our genetic ancestors to uh, a common ancestor from which the chimpanzees evolved, from which the gorillas evolved, and from which we evolved. Somewhere along this branching of these higher primates, one, one day, was able to do something different. One was able to fly free of its genetics. Now, we don't know, we don't understand exactly what specifically it is about this organism and organisms like ourselves Okay, our, our ancestors who had this feature in common with us were the only surviving such species, which enabled it to begin solving problems that were outside the repertoire of problems that could only have been solved by the DNA and allowed this organism to think creatively about things. And so now we're in this position where human culture and the human environment is dominated not by the first kind of knowledge, not by genetic knowledge, but instead by this thing that we've come to call explanatory knowledge, which is this unique quality that we have of understanding the environment, never mind being condemned by the environment anymore, condemned by our genetics, but being able to take control of the environment around us such that if the environment changes, then we can change that environment or ourselves in order to survive no matter what comes, more or less, you know. Still, the environment could change too quickly and still something could overcome our ability to adapt. But the evolution of explanatory knowledge or mimetic knowledge, if you like, is so much faster than the evolution of genetic knowledge. And so that gives us a massive survival advantage. And this is why I say, if you, know, if you really care about the animals, then you have to care even more about people. Because in the long run, it is only people 
who are going to be able to save every other organism out there that people say they care about. And so we have to do everything we can to ensure our rapid progress, which is the only thing that's going to allow us to survive off into the indefinite future. Because the indefinite future otherwise, absent us, is a future of complete and utter sterilization of planet Earth. Nothing's coming along otherwise to save planet Earth from either the asteroid catastrophe or climate change or the expansion of the sun or something else cosmological we don't know about yet that is going to wipe out every single thing on this earth. But it won't. And the only reason it won't, we would think, is because we're here to solve the problem once we become aware of it. But becoming aware of it is a whole other thing. It's about creating that explanatory knowledge ever faster, ever more rapidly, so that effectively we've got eyes in infinite directions observing for the thing that we can't yet explain and which gives us a problem and for which only we on the face of the planet are able to find a solution in time. That's really inspiring. So uh, you said that we don't yet know how this creativity thing emerged, so how we create explanatory knowledge. We don't yet know the process that led to this, uh, this mechanism through which humans, uh, through which people create knowledge. Could it be that genetics and the environment and natural selection, some uh, combination of them, they led to us having this sort of, I'd say, power to maybe create knowledge, create explanatory theories to make sense of our environment, make sense of uh, the problems and solve them? It must be that. The only known explanation for variation in species is, as Darwin explained, this mm -hmm. selection of uh, mutations over time that we call adaptations. And the neo-Darwinist view that uh, the unit of selection is the gene. And so some incremental changes over time have somehow or other led to us, led to this explanatory knowledge. And we don't know the reasons why. I've made the case, because this, this rapidly leads into a discussion about the likelihood or not of extraterrestrial intelligence out there elsewhere, because if it happened here on Earth, could it happen elsewhere? Is there kind of this arrow to evolution that naturally leads to this niche, as we call it, this intelligence niche? which is filled by intelligent species like us. Well, it's happened here on Earth. Why wouldn't it happen elsewhere? Uh, well, that could very well be the case. There's, there's, there's no way of ruling that out. There's so many unknowns here. But, and I, I think I've said this on, on, on podcasts before, for example, the Naval podcast, I said, well, if this is the case, then it's a remarkable thing that it appears to have only happened once on Earth. This feature this very, very useful feature that we have, this capacity to explain the environment in which we find ourselves, the capacity to create new stuff and bring new stuff into, into being, um, where at the structures that we inhabit, our houses and office buildings and so on and so forth, are not in our genes at all. They come from our minds conjecturing ideas. This is not like the beehive, which is in the genetic um, the DNA of the bee, and not like the bird's nest, which is in the, the DNA of the bird. This is something else entirely. You know, the Taj Mahal and Buckingham Palace are not in the DNA of any human uh, who, who has ever lived. Instead, they've come from the mines, which is a completely different thing. And so if it's happened to us, this amazing survival thing, could it happen elsewhere? Well, the weird thing is, it only seems to have happened, this genetic mutation happened once, seemingly to one of our ancestors, and we evolve from that ancestor. Now, it could be the case maybe that it happened multiple times across different ancestors and somehow or other, or not, not necessarily our direct ancestors, maybe there was this branching and a whole bunch of coexistent uh, intelligent species fought it out and, you know, Homo sapiens happened to win the day. Whatever the case, we're still down to a very small number of such creatures. It's not like wings of animals. The wings of animals keep on cropping up. Insects have wings. Apparently dinosaurs, some of them had wings. Birds have wings. Certain species of fish have wings. And we call this a convergent feature of evolution. If it's so useful, then we would expect it to arise all the time. And if we expect that there's life out there in the universe, we should expect that there will be creatures there that will fly. They'll have wings and they'll be able to fly. The same as they will have fins and be able to swim. But intelligence, 
Well, the argument might be that it's happened so rarely here. It's such a quirky thing. You shouldn't expect it elsewhere. But we don't know yet. Does evolution lead, can evolution lead to intelligence, however? Can evolution lead to this capacity to create an explanatory knowledge? Yes, absolutely, because it's happened to us. Is this necessarily a good way to go about trying to create artificial general intelligence? For all the reasons I've just said, probably not. Um, it seems to be such an unlikely occurrence that uh, trying to recreate that step by step, given even though computers can run much faster than what um, you know, evolution has, Again, we don't know exactly what the selection pressures were, and we can't, by the way, simulate in the same way evolution that's happened out there in physical reality inside of our computer systems because we don't understand that sort of knowledge creation either. We don't understand evolutionary knowledge creation, although we don't understand explanatory knowledge creation, and although we have a reasonably good explanation of evolution by natural selection, we don't understand all of the details, and as such, we can't fully simulated inside of a computer. We only have these crude algorithms that are called uh, evolutionary algorithms, but really they're not creating any new knowledge. All right. So maybe switching gears a little, uh, but still on this topic, uh, is evolutionary psychology a good explanation for our behavior? Uh, does it not have all the components of a good, hard to vary explanation? Does it miss out on things as well, like simply non-explanatory knowledge would say? I say it's a bad explanation or a non-explanation because mm -hmm. human beings are so starkly different to every other organism that exists. And our minds are completely different to whatever is happening to cause the behavior of every single other creature on planet Earth. Every other creature on planet Earth is able to engage in behaviours that are coded within its DNA. You would be able to write down a, a list, a finitely long list of all the different things that, um, uh, for example, uh, a bird could do. You could write down a list of you know, how it's able to create the nest, how it's able to fly, how it's able to peck on the ground, and so on and so forth. And a comp even a reasonably good programmer today would be able to write an algorithm for a bird and we'll be able to capture all the relevant behaviours of a bird and the bird inside a computer would, would behave rather like um, what a bird in real life does just inside the computer. Um, but a human being, not so much. A human being, you cannot enumerate or list all the different behaviours of a human being. A human being has an open-ended list of behaviours to which they can continue to add without bound. What evolutionary psychology is kind of saying, and there's some uh, interesting uh, uh, hedges that come into the explanation sometimes when you read about evolutionary psychology, they will say things like, it's not that the DNA necessarily strictly determines people's behavior. It just shapes or influences people's behavior. But we're never given a full account of exactly how this influence or this shaping of people's behavior works. We can do lots of studies to show that people with similar DNA uh, have a uh, behaviours that are similar as well. There's a correlation there. But a correlation is not an explanation either. So we have this, um, uh, we might say, if you are an evolutionary psychologist, an open question as to precisely what the mechanism is. How is it that this set of genes causes a person to behave in this particular way? But let's say I was even to grant that there was such an influence. People like to object at this point and say, well, you can't say that something like um, hunger or thirst isn't in the DNA. And I would immediately admit, yes, the reason why you experience hunger and thirst is because absolutely there must be a set of genes for causing this sensation in you. And they might say, ha-ha, so there is such a thing in the DNA causing content in the mind causing content in the mind, of course, you know, the fact that you have colour vision or not, maybe you're colour blind, that's in the um, DNA somehow in some shape or form, it's there in the DNA. But what we're talking about is not just this sense data that we get, this interpretation of sense data that we get, but what we do about that, that's what really a mind is. A mind is about what it does with the contents 
of itself. The contents of the mind need to be processed, interpreted, uh, uh, refined, and some output, some behavior then results from the person coming to understand what the contents of their mind happen to be. And so when we have some kind of thought, what we do is we try to understand the thought and then try to improve or act upon the thought. And again, this is not like what an animal does. An animal isn't reflecting upon whether or not it should do a particular thing. An animal simply does a particular thing based upon, and we have this word for it, instinct. We have instincts, but we routinely are able to go against our instincts, unlike an animal. An animal is not able to violate its own instincts. It doesn't, because that requires an understanding. In order to understand what this instinct is, this desire for food and recognizing, aha, well, you know, that's the, uh, uh, that's the third packet of chips I've had today. Um, I might still have an instinct to go back for more, but I'm not going to because I understand what happens. <laughs> I understand that this is not a good thing. Apparently, Labrador dogs are a certain breed of dog where if you give it food, it'll just keep on eating and eating and eating to its own detriment. And some Labrador dogs might even eat themselves to death. Now, people can do this. Of course, there are certain people who have, uh, we might say, no self-control. Uh, and, 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 and self-control is a certain kind of understanding as well. So I'm using this word understanding, but what is understanding? Understanding is the capacity to create explanatory knowledge. Once you have an explanation, you have an understanding, and then you can take whatever sense data you have, interpretations of the world around you, and choose to act upon that or not. And you can have a wide repertoire of different things that you might do with this sense data. Again, something completely unlike what any other animal does, where it is simply input, process, output. Now, we're a computer of a kind, okay? We take in this data, we process it, and we output. But the process that's going on there, the processing of that data is very, very different. And the reason it's very, very different is because it is completely unpredictable. And it's unpredictable inherently because we're creative. From the outside, broadly speaking, there are, there, you know, there are of course, some uh, edge cases here you can predict that the person has been denied water for the last 48 hours, is definitely going to drink from that glass of water you've just put in front of them. Okay, yeah, that's fine. But broadly speaking, you know, if someone is uh, uh, wakes up in the morning and you're asked to predict everything they're going to do throughout the course of the day, you're, you're going to get it wrong nine times out of ten. This is unlike, you know, the cat. I can predict the behavior of my cat more or less, exactly what it's going to do. The cat is not going to sit down in front of the computer and start penning out an email at 10 a.m. There, there, there is a whole bunch of things we can completely and utterly rule out. Again, not like the person. It is um, because of the fact that we are able to create explanatory knowledge, our behavior remains inherently unpredictable. Okay. So from this side of the argument, it's like understanding, as you say, or creating explanatory knowledge can override our genetics. And there's another side which says, oh, okay, if it's not genetics, the other one is culture. So cultural ideas, uh, memes, if you want to call them. So these memes get instantiated. And somehow when I read about these arguments, they're like, they don't have a certain source at the top. They're just there in the culture. And so everybody is completely, utterly just, uh, just, uh, determined by their culture, cultural ideas. So, but you say that everyone, every person at least, can create a, and it can create explanatory knowledge and create, uh, through their creativity, can create these new theories. So, can we override culture as well through our creativity? Yes, we can. And remember, the, the, these capacities to do these things that I'm talking about are in principle. It doesn't mean that we will or that it's necessarily easy. Yes. So what we're reacting against here is when the evolutionary psychologists say that something is determined or that we are condemned in a certain way because of our genetics, this is what I'm reacting against. It's not, again, it's not that there is no such thing as a genetic influence. 
if there's anything at all, and I've used this example before, if there's anything at all that the genetics provides us with that is a a strong um, sort of influence, it's this genetic desire to survive that we share with every single other animal. But we know of unfortunate cases uh, where people actively choose to die. Uh, we, we, we know of the, the suicide bomber. We know of the depressed person. We know of the person towards the end of their life who um, uh, goes into palliative care and chooses to kill themselves. Again, this is not something that uh, animals choose to do. So we are able to override that genetic impulse to survive. We're able to override that genetic impulse to eat and go on a diet. Name your so-called genetic impulse. We can overcome it in order to do something other than what our instincts are telling us to do. In the same way, there might be very, very strong desires to conform to a particular culture, that we have these memes and uh, we're required to comport to the memes. So you know, our simple one is you know, almost every culture finds it unacceptable for someone to walk completely uh, buck naked down the street. You know, We don't tolerate nudity walking through uh, a typical large city. There is this uh, cultural expectation you won't do this. And if someone's asked to do this or even paid mo- offered money to do this, they will rarely do this because there's a strong desire not to. But it doesn't mean that in principle anyone could do this and probably everyone would have their price <laughs> in order to do this yeah. as well. So there is always, with explanatory knowledge, a way in which our minds can create an explanation which is going to enable us to recognize an instinct or an impulse or a desire as such and to explain to our own satisfaction whether or not satisfying that desire or impulse is a good thing or whether on reflection it's not such a good thing to do that particular thing and instead to deny ourselves um, from that impulse. We can morally choose, we can decide is it a good thing to, to um, just do what the genetics or what the culture says to do or not? Mm-hmm. Now I'd like to quote a tweet of yours, a very recent tweet. Uh, you write, personal outcomes are determined by choices. A person is not a victim of their genes or their culture. One can run against both and the capacity to do so is also not a matter of genes and or culture. People are unique. We create knowledge. We generate new choices and choose them. So I was very glad to read this tweet because I knew this is exactly what I ta- want to talk to talk to you about uh, in our conversation right now. So some people would disagree, most notably, like there are intellectuals like Sam Harris who feel that there is no free will and free will is an illusion. Um, I know you've spoken a lot and written many blog posts on your view on free will, but where exactly does the argue does the disagreement lie between Sam Harris and your theory of free will, and what? So, are there un, other theories as well which just disagree, and what's the cause that they happen so? Well, the cause I think is an understandable retreat from superstition and from mysticism for. Almost all of recorded human history, there appears to have been this understanding that humans were indeed special. Our holy books recognize this, and our holy books uh, instantiate ancient wisdom, and that they're amongst our, the oldest uh, texts of all. And they're all about, you know, when you sort of distill out the particular messages from them, about how there is something really special about being a human being. And in the monotheistic religions, of course, we are exalted as being the pinnacle of a kind. We have dominion over the the other species. Now, of course, in the especially in the eighteenth, nineteenth, twentieth century, as the Enlightenment proceeded, and we came to understand our place in the universe more and more, we began to see that certain claims made by these ancient texts were superstitious. Now, some people threw out the entire baby with the bathwater. And so they say, well, you know, the magic and the miracles that are in those ancient texts, that's rubbish. This idea that, you know, an all-powerful deity created the universe in merely seven days, that doesn't comport with what we understand of geology and astronomy. Um, 
there, there's a universe governed by physical laws, and there isn't magic. There isn't a place for magic within a scientific worldview, and so therefore we can we can do away with with, with so much of um, what has come before. It used to be the case that it was thought, and here I'm coming to the, the central part of your question, that. The planet Earth on which we, human beings are found was supposed to be the center of the universe. And so we had this privileged position. But as time went on, we realized that not only was the planet Earth not the center of the universe, okay, it was just instead on the, uh, it was orbiting the sun. The sun was on the outer suburbs of a particular galaxy, one amongst um, hundreds of billions, perhaps trillions. Not only that, not only is our place in the universe not special, but we're not special. We, just like all the other organisms we see around us, have evolved okay, from an ancient common ancestor um, uh, billions of years ago. So we're not special. We're not special. And so this idea of continuing to say all the ways in which we're not special uh, has, a, has a strong, has a long lineage of philosophical uh, reactions against mysticism. And so it's understandable that you eventually get to uh, the situation where we are now, the problem that we have now, of what makes us special. And many people saying, well, we're not that special. Uh, 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 speaking of Sam, Sam Harris did a, uh, a, a podcast, it's a paid podcast, you've got to pay, pay for it, but he's done this series with Ricky Gervais. It's very, very funny. It's very, very worthwhile for people to listen to. But the interesting thing about that, what struck me most about that is the furious agreement that they both had on the point that, well, we're basically just chimpanzees. We're just an increment of beyond chimpanzees, but there's nothing particularly special about us. You have to do a lot of work, actually, to ignore um, reality in order to come to that conclusion. After all, if we're just an increment beyond chimpanzees, why is it that we dominate the earth? And by the way, this domination of the earth, this changing the environment, this, this, this constructing the world around us in order to protect ourselves from a hostile universe, this is also denigrated by exactly the same philosophy. You know, we cause pollution, we're damaging the environment, we're wiping out other species. The list is long of all the ways in which we're evil. And so we're causing uh, the place to become ever worse. I would, of course, argue we're causing the place to become ever better. And without us, the, uh, the, the planet Earth would be polluted with all the natural pollutants that are out there. Uh, species that would go extinct would go extinct without the help of people. Okay, so we're, we're, we've been through that. So there is something special about people. And so... This idea of free will, it's the name uh, both of, uh, it's a convenient way of speaking, and it's also the name of a problem. It's part of the name of the problem that is what makes us different to all these other species. And we don't have a full account of what it is that gives us this capacity to generate explanatory knowledge. And once we have this capacity to generate explanatory knowledge, to choose among the things we've just begun to explain. As I like to say, well, the, the good example here is um, we can't choose to generate uh, electricity via nuclear reactions, via um, nuclear fission power using uh, uranium, until we have an understanding of nuclear physics. You know, in Australia, we're talking now about trying to eliminate coal-fired power stations in order to generate electricity. And we've, so we've got a choice and so governments are choosing, do we go down the solar and wind? Or do we build more hydroelectricity? Or do we build a nuclear reactor, many nuclear reactors, presumably? Well, we only have the capacity to make that choice given that we've generated explanatory knowledge. And the explanatory knowledge, as we've already said, was not in the DNA. So how is it that we are able to generate this choice and then choose it? Also not in the DNA. Now, clearly we're unique on that argument. Without us, absent us, extract us out of the picture, there's no choice going on. Things are merely unfolding as a matter of laws of physics. But this unfolding of things, according to the laws of physics, although it applies to us, there's no escaping the laws of physics, everything is determined by the laws of physics, that, that, that is merely a predictive picture of what is happening in the universe. It doesn't explain what actually happens. And given us in this picture, something's going to happen, for example, in Australia. Either we're going to build a nuclear reactor or not. Now, whether it happens or not, saying something like, 
well, there was just an outworking of the laws of physics that this particular thing happened. No, we're going to talk about policies and um, uh, how much electricity is required and and what the mitigation effects of carbon dioxide happen to be and how, how close people want to live to um, nuclear fission reactors and all this sort of stuff. So my my interpretation of all of this is merely to say what free will is, is a label for our capacity to choose. It's we who choose. And it really is us who choose. Now, some people, of course, come back and say, oh, we're not dying, denying um, the capacity of human beings to choose. Sam Harris has said this in, in a few moods. Um, yes. And at that point, I kind of want to say, then what does it mean to say we don't have free will? If it's we who are doing the choosing and it's a genuine choice, then to me that, that, that immediately admits of what I'm calling free will. Now, they might say, well, it's not, that's not free will. Free will is something else that steps outside of uh, laws of physics, for example. It's something that, that, that is mystical. Well, okay, if they want to call that um, free will, then I agree. Uh, that, that kind of free will, I think sometimes people call it libertarian free will or something like that, um, that doesn't exist. Uh, of course, we cannot violate the laws of physics. But what I want to do is I want to explain why it is that people are unique and I want to emphasise that people are so special. I want to emphasise that we've got to stop treating people as if we're just other animals, just slightly higher on the evolutionary chain compared to chimpanzees. We've got to stop denigrating people as being nothing, as, as just something like this chemical scum, as just uh, a, a kind of blip uh, in the evolutionary scheme of things, occupying a planet that's just one among uh, so many in our particular galaxy, one among so many in the entire universe. No, as David Deutsch points out, and I think one of his, um, uh, I think his first TED talk, we are actually the centre of something. We are the hub. And that hub is the hub of explanatory knowledge. As far as we know, it's the only place in the entire universe where this is going on. We're, we're here on this planet. We are coming to explain the rest of physical reality. That is an astonishing and amazing thing. And because we can explain the rest of physical reality, we can begin to transform physical reality around us. Now, whether we make this transformation or that transformation, is up to us. It's we who will choose, not determined by other factors that are non-conscious, not determined by um, uh, just laws of physics, because that would be a non-explanatory way to go, even though the laws of physics apply, and yes, there is the sense in which they determine, but rather determined by our choices. And that's all we need to admit to say that people have free will. And so my insistence on free will is... Not so much because I'm uh, I'm sort of religiously and dogmatically committed to this. It's more provocative than anything else. It's me trying to have the conversation because anyone who wants to have the conversation to say we don't have free will, there's something else going on there. And that something else that's going on there is treating us as just like any other physical system that's out there, just like any other animal. And beneath that is a kind of anti-human denigration and I want to exalt people. And the first and easiest way to do that is just to say, hey, we do have this thing called free will. Now, I don't really know what free will is. In the same way, I don't know what the creation of knowledge really is. But I know that the creation of knowledge is real. And therefore, I know that making choices is real. And I just label all of this stuff free will. Okay, Free will. And so I'm a compatibilist of a sort just to say that, that this label is a convenient one, that if you try and remove it, if you take it out of the picture, as many people do, we're still left with a problem. We've still got to have the conversation about, well, why is it that we live in cities? Why is it that we've completely terraformed the surface of the earth? What is going on there? Okay, it's not magical. It's not mystical. There's something going on. And you can't just go, well, it's the outworking of the laws of physics or it's evolutionarily determined. No, there's something else. We're, we're creating knowledge, and so we've still got to talk about that. And if you if you really if you want to take free will off the table, okay, I'm happy to have that conversation as well. But let's talk about exactly how it is that people are so special, why we're so unique, why we're so important, and what it is that we're going to have to do, what decisions we're going to have to make, free or not, apparently, in order for us to survive, for planet Earth to survive, and to continue to make the place a lot better, 
a lot more wealthy and a lot more um, safe for us because as I keep on uh, um, harping on uh, on the podcast, this is an implacably hostile universe in which we find ourselves. This environment, this natural environment is not a nice place. It's not, you know, this idyllic scene that sometimes people uh, evoke when they're talking about environmentalism, for example. No, when I think of the environment, I think of, you know, uh, thunderstorms and earthquakes and bushfires and uh, asteroids coming and goodness knows what else, <laughs> that if we don't have the wealth and the knowledge um, created in time is going to do us in. Okay. Yeah, that was profound. Do you think there is uh, a lack of understanding on the explanatory knowledge part that people are tended to believe that free will is an illusion? Yes, yes. Um, uh, the, the idea that um, free will is an illusion, again, as I say, has to do with a particular kind of physicalism. Uh, so this... Mm -hmm. Uh, this notion that um, there's just physical forces playing out in the universe and so yes. uh, what, what, what else could be causing our behaviour? And so if you don't understand that explanatory knowledge is this cosmically significant thing, at the moment we don't notice it, right? Uh, eventually it will become, it's becoming increasingly more and more difficult not to notice. Yeah. Um, you know, how to deny that uh, something special is going on with us. But as the, as the years go by, uh, perhaps millennia, uh, perhaps eons geological, geologically speaking, we will have not only completely transformed the face of this planet, which I think is a good thing and which I suppose 95% of people still think is a terrible thing, uh, that we should reduce our, our, our impact on the environment. But as I say, our impact on the environment is the only thing that's going to save us. Eventually we'll terraform, well, I don't think that's necessarily the right word, we, we will transform the solar system and the galaxy, and I, I can certainly imagine a million years from now that the galaxy will look completely unlike what it does today because of one thing, explanatory knowledge. And what thing creates that explanatory knowledge? That's us. We are the thing that's doing that. And so this is why we say it's cosmically significant. We're cosmically significant. Now, it's not noticeable now, but if you take a God's eye view, so to speak, of the multiverse, or just the universe, if you like, uh, uh, and you're up there as God, so you're outside of time and you're able to look at the evolution of the universe over time, you will see that um, a million years from now, what's going on there yeah, sure, gravity's having an effect. Yeah, sure, the electromagnetic force and the strong and weak nuclear forces, they're having an effect but it will be explanatory knowledge, the creation of explanatory knowledge that has really begun to transform the entire universe, starting with our galaxy, presuming there's no other intelligent life out there, which there might well be. But let's say there's not, and, and we do manage to survive by creating wealth and knowledge ourselves. Then the transformation of the solar system, the, the local group of um, uh, stars and then the, the, the galaxy and the local group of galaxies will occur because of us. You know, who knows what things will physically look like, but one would expect uh, completely different to, to what they look now. And again, not because of the action of gravity, but rather because of the action of us creating knowledge and choosing what to do about that knowledge and with that knowledge. Yep. Lastly, I'd like to borrow from the host of my second favorite podcast. I'm lucky to be talking to the host of my first favorite podcast here. Uh, but second favorite podcast is Lex Friedman. So I'll be asking you what you think of the meaning of life question. Uh, so there's, there's, I suppose there's two ways of, of coming at that. It's, it's life either in the broader sense of the word, like why does life exist here? Which, which is a, 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 a curious and interesting one, is there providence within the laws of physics? Was it somehow written into the laws of nature that because, because things are determined, right? And so because things are determined somehow, if you had this oracle or this you know, omniscient God at the beginning who, who set the conditions to be what they are and who set the laws to be what they are, I don't think that will, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know exactly where these things come from. But somehow or other, we're written in to that. So the meaning of life in one sense is why, what's going on there? You know, um, uh, you listen to Joe Rogan long enough and he talks about this stuff um, about how we're, we, we human beings are bringing something else into existence. Uh, 
that we're bringing in the the artificial life that's really going to take over the universe. Now, I disagree with that. Okay, I disagree with that because I think there is one kind of person. A person is this thing that can generate explanatory knowledge. We've talked about you know, that's the definition of a person. That's what separates a person from all other things. And that capacity to generate explanatory knowledge, by the way, is universal. So anything that can be explained or understood can be explained or understood by us. And if there's uh, purported to be something that can't be explained by us, well, that's just an appeal to the supernatural, that there's something that can't be understood. So where I might differ with Joe is that not that we're bringing something else into being that's going to radically transform the rest of the universe, but we are that thing that's going to radically transform the universe. Now, why? Why Why is this kind of life here? It seems that maybe life existed, came into existence in order that we would come into existence in order that the universe itself would be utterly and radically transformed. And maybe at some point over the next million, billion years, we'll figure out exactly what the reason for any of this was. Okay, maybe there's no reason. Maybe it, maybe it is all just random, but I, I tend not to think so uh, because I think there will be an explanation for all of this, including an explanation for why intelligence, this capacity to create explanations, is possible within this universe. The fact that it is possible is one thing, but why should it be possible? Okay, is it just random? Well, if it's just random, again, that's non-explanatory. That can be applied to anything at all. So that's one answer to the meaning of life, that, that, that life is here to bring the capacity to generate explanations into the universe and the capacity to generate explanations transforms the universe. And why would the universe want to be transformed or why is the universe able to be transformed? Well, there's the open question, but life has something to do with that. Now, on the other hand, there's the, the, the more parochial answer to what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning to your life? And the meaning to an individual's life is to spend spending time trying to figure out what is fun and what is interesting. I think that's the central message. And you can be right and wrong about what's fun and interesting. People just think, oh, it's just it's just what you find fun. It's just what you find it. No, I don't I, I disagree with that. I think there are right and wrong answers here, as there are in any other domain. You can be wrong about what you think is fun because you simply haven't uh, tried hard enough to look widely enough to find out what you find is fun. So what you find fun today, okay, you might have a particular favorite uh, computer game. You could either choose to be utterly consumed by that computer game for 12, 16 hours a day, as some people do. That's one level of having fun. And you might think I'm completely satisfied. But if you took some time out of that to, to try and find other interests, you would eventually find that there are other things you will find fun. And some of those things are actually better than others to spend time on. Now, it might be the case that, that, that satisfying a whole raft of different things all at the same time, or not all at the same time, but a whole raft of things throughout the course of the day, that's the meaning of life, to do different things over the course of the day. But essentially that, I think, is, and it should be for everyone, what they're trying to pursue, a way in which to have fun uh, without coercion uh, throughout the course of the day. And what what I think in more enlightened people tend to find is that the real fun comes from uh, what we're doing right now, having conversations with other people, coming to a deeper understanding of things, challenging themselves with particular problems that they're interested in. Sometimes that involves um, uh, 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 picking out on junk food in front of the television mindlessly. <laughs> Sometimes it involves nothing but um, playing computer game. But more often than not, it involves a, a richer palette of things than that. It involves exactly what we've been talking about, generating explanatory knowledge, being creative, using the one thing that separates us from all other creatures that have ever existed and as far as we know don't exist throughout the rest of the universe and that is our uniquely universal minds and because they're universal you have an infinite array of possible things that you could find fun satisfying and non-coercive to do with your time and so you need to your meaning of your life is to find out what those things are and to pursue them for as long as you possibly can if I may ask just one last question, what what is this one fun thing, if you have, if you like, uh, for you, that you like most? Maybe we touched on this in the beginning when we talked about why you're so interested in philosophy, but I'd still like to get an answer here. Yes, yeah, so it is this gradually involving, um, gradually improving over time um, uh, ability to 
have conversations like this, to engage with people um, and, and talk about what we know, what we're yet to know, and how we might get to from what we know, uh, from what we don't know to what we know. So how we can go about creating knowledge and uh, wealth. Uh, wealth is very important in order to help us uh, have the capacity to bring knowledge into being that is going to solve our problems. So I, I, I sort of, um, rather than being uh, specifically engaged in any one particular thing, just being able to have multiple different interests so that if you if you do get slightly bored about dealing with this one particular thing, uh, then I can quickly um, change to something else. So I, I find, it's, I, I compare it sometimes to, to mining. You know, people go mining for gold and you find a, a rich vein. Um, you know, still I'm mining in, in, in Popper's world, you know, reading his books and, um, you know, obviously he spent um, decades upon decades having conversations, writing things. And so he spent uh, more time, uh, I think, than I have uh, thinking on these problems. And so you can always open up, even if I've read particular books of his uh, many times, uh, I can still find something new. Um, uh, the same with the work of David Deutsch. And so there are these, there are these thinkers out there that have, have laid out um, solutions for us, explanations for us, but also left us with problems. And so I'm, uh, uh, that, that's what really, that specifically is what interests me, is in finding these areas where uh, these people that went before, um, uh, in some cases these people that are still with us working on these uh, really important problems, where I can come to understand, even if I can't contribute to the solution, at least I can understand the problem and maybe explain the problem in a slightly different way so that someone else, someone like you, might be able to figure out the solution for the rest of us. That's beautiful. Uh, it's been a pleasure speaking and having this conversation. Thank you so much for coming to the podcast. No, well, thank you. It's a great honor to, to be the first guest on your podcast as well. Um, I, I, I love, re I encourage everyone out there to get a hold of Arjun's newsletter to, to read it. It's a, a phenomenal um, insights into knowledge and science and uh, all your other interests. And so I can't wait to hear the uh, other episodes of this podcast to come.